Good morning, everyone. My name is Janice. Um, the theme of our sermon series has been good for me, um, recognizing that um, when I came to Restoration, I was very broken as well, coming from a, a painful church split. And just moments ago realized I have not been in front of a congregation um, in over five years. Um, I was quite active in our other church. And so I'm very, very much at peace and pleased to bring you the scripture today. We're going to jump into the Israelite story in Ezra 3, if you'd like to open your Bible and join us. Um, King Cyrus has just called everyone back um, to Jerusalem, and they are ready to begin rebuilding the altar. So Ezra 3, verses 1 through 13. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, son of Jozadak, and his fellow priest, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings in it, in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on this foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. Then, in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the Festival of Tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred festivals of the Lord, as well as those brought as freewill offerings to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. When they gave money, excuse me, then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and gave food and drink and olive oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre, so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa, as authorized by Cyrus, king of Persia. In the second month of the second year, after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shetiel, Joshua, son of Jazadak, and the rest of the people, the priests and Levites, and all who had returned from the captivity to Jerusalem, began the work. They appointed Levites, 20 years old and older, to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Joshua and his sons and brothers and Cadmiel and his sons, descendants of Hodavia, and sons of Hanadad and their sons and brothers, all Levites, joined together in supervising those working on the house of God. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets, and the Levites and sons of Asaph with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord, as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love towards Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sounds of weeping, because the people made so much noise, and the sound was heard far away. Well, it was late one evening, early October, about a year and a half ago, when a fire was ignited by years of drought and nasty winds, and the raging fire made its way across the mountains 
to the city of Santa Rosa, California. It was just hours that it crept over this mountain, and at 2 a.m., this man named Scott was abruptly awoken by his wife. We need to leave now, she said. There's a giant fire. He quickly got dressed. He raced outside, and everything to the east and south of them was engulfed in flames. There was this explosions, there were these explosions that were happening every five to ten seconds that were just ringing out, and there was this ominous, ominous roar. It was like, he said, the fire had a voice. It was like they were being attacked by this unknown enemy. And people in his neighborhood were hastily packing their cars and warning their neighbors. Scott only had time to grab his cat and his laptop and their cell phones. Thank goodness the cat made the top three. It's my thought, but, you know, anyway, another story for another day. So the two-lane road that leaves their neighborhood becomes four lanes just going out. People are up on the curb, they are in gridlock traffic, and so they knew that the overpasses and the highways were going to be crammed, so they headed west on a small back road that made it to a community about 15 miles away. As they drove out, they saw entire neighborhoods completely devastated. They saw two mobile home parks destroyed in their city. They saw people caught in the firestorm. And they saw people, or cars, careening down hills. He said it was all too much to take in. But within a few hours, they started receiving text messages from people in their church. Their church was on the opposite side of the city, and it was open and safe from the fire. So they decided to turn around and head back towards the fire and the church to help their friends and their community. What would cause them to return? As I pondered the scripture that Janice read, it's similar. There are God's people who were living in it and around Jerusalem were expelled from their country by the Babylonians in three waves. First ones was 605 BC. They took the wisest and brightest leaders and the most skilled workers and they left. And then in 597 BC, they took another wave of people and again, the brightest and the most skilled were taken. And and then in 586 BC, they took another wave of people and in this time, they they leveled the temple of God that King Solomon had built. In each of those times, people were wondering if God was going to protect them because they didn't, again, because it happened in three waves, they were thinking, maybe this isn't going to be as bad as I thought, but, or as bad as some of the prophets have said. But actually, 70 years go by with the people all scattered throughout this Babylonian Empire, all across from Egypt, all the way across um, the mountains, Lebanon, Jerusalem, and all the way up through Iran, Iraq, all the way over to the Persian Gulf. And then, after 70 years, the Persian Empire destroys and defeats the Babylonian Empire, and so Cyrus, the king of Persia, declares that all of the people that the Babylonians had captive could return to their homeland. This was a common practice of um, 
ancient empires. It was, it was thought to build goodwill and trust or loyalty to the people because they were now under a new king. And so for the Jews, that meant that they could return to Babylon, or they could return to Jerusalem, at least whatever was left of Jerusalem. And so this story is the story of people making their way back. And there's official edicts that happen in the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah, the first one being in Ezra 1, 3, and 4. King Cyrus declares and writes that any of his people among you that go up to Jerusalem in Judah, and any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And any locality, in any locality where survivors might now be living, the people are to provide them with gold and silver, with goods and livestock, and with a free will offering for the temple of God in Jerusalem. The only thing that I could think of would be similar would be if, for some reason, Canada overtook the United States and then declared, the prime minister declared that all of the people that were living in the United States were to give free will offerings to the Native Americans and they could return from their reservations to the sacred places that they used to be. So how would the Canadians feel? How would the people that are living in the United States feel? And ultimately, how would the Native Americans feel if that was the case? That's the kind of return that's happening. That's, I don't know if it sounds like opportunity to you or if it sounds like difficulty to you. Would you be able to see God at work in one of those situations when really the place you're returning to is, is rubble? It's just ruins. And I've been pondering this, this statement that goes like this. Difficult or easy never change the world or our lives. Difficult and overcoming difficulties is always what changes the world and our lives. Is that true in your life? Are the things that are difficult the things that actually change your life, that transform you, that cause you to become the person that God has you today? And if it's true, then maybe difficult is worth it. And I think just as important, difficult doesn't mean that God's not in it. See, I think that the writer of Ezra and Nehemiah wants us to see God at work in the ruins and the rubble of the situation and then also in the rubble of our lives. So in the chapter that Janice read, these people looks like they're seeking God. They're returning back to their homeland. They're trying to create a new normal because normal was living in Babylon. And many of those people that are returning actually were the ones that were born in Babylon had a life in Babylon, and now have to return to a new way of living. They leave what is good, or what seems good, I think for the potential of something better. And they've been there about six months. They've been restoring their, rebuilding their homes, restoring their livelihood, their work, and their cities. And it comes time to celebrate this big festival. It's known in the in the Jerusalem calendar as the Festival of Tabernacles. It's kind of like Christmas and Thanksgiving put together, so Christ thanks must giving is what I came up with, because they celebrate the harvest and they have a lot of food, but they also sacrifice a lot of money or in their 
uh, currency, livestock, and grains and things that they produced to then give gifts to God and one another. So it'd be saying, in the midst of rebuilding your life, maybe even like Scott and his wife after a fire, would you pause to remember God, to worship him, to celebrate what he's done, how he's protected, and how he's present. That's what the people do. And I think there's some difficulty associated with that. But they choose to do that. And there's no national state. Remember that there, there's, there's a governor. There's not a king anymore. Jerusalem or Judea or Israel is not its own country. It's now merely a territory of a new empire. They have no army to protect them. They have no city walls to protect them. They are, as Janice read, they're, despite their fear of the people around them, they build an altar to God and they build the foundations for a new temple. And yet the story ends with these mixed emotions. When the builders lay the foundation of the temple, the priests are there in their vestments, and their, the trumpets are blown, the Levites, the son of Asaph, have their symbols. It's, it's all supposed to bring us back to the times when Moses and the Israelites completed the temple, when King Solomon, son of King David, when they complete the permanent worship center, the temple, and they sing out this song, the Lord is good, his love towards Israel endures forever. That's happened in each of these times. The people let out this shout of praise because the temple's lit, the foundation are laid, and yet, in the midst of the shouts of joy, there are shouts of weeping that are so loud that one can't distinguish the sounds of weeping to the sounds of joy. That's emotion. That's deep. That's sometimes what happens when we watch the Super Bowl or the World Series or I was watching some of the state girls' hockey tournament and the number of games that went into overtime and we're like, oh, and there's this heartbreak and yet at the same time, there is this cheering. That's what's happening here. There is this heartbreak and this cheering. And why? Why is there heartbreak and cheering? Is it because the temple's not finished? Only the foundations are laid? Is it because this new temple actually is built on the foundations of the old temple, so they're about the same size, and they're both constructed of imported wood? The writer goes into detail about that. But it also goes into detail about the fact that Solomon's temple had gold and silver that had all of these decorations on it. It took seven years to build with lots of resources. Zerubbabel's temple was built in four years with less resources. So, clearly, Solomon's temple is more ornate, more beautiful than the other one. Plus, when you picture it, Solomon's temple would have been in the hub of a thriving city. And Zerubbabel's temple has rubble and ruins around it. Is that why they wept? Well, you have to remember that this story is part of a larger story, and I think why I'm going to the detail is because the writer wants to invite us into the story to picture what it would have been like to stand there, to hear the trumpets, to hear the shouts of joy, and then what would happen next. So if we go back, 
to the first time that God had them create a temporary worship center. It was called the tabernacle. It was with Moses and the Israelites in the desert. In Exodus 40, verse 34 and 35, it says that when they finished the tabernacle, the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled that tabernacle. I don't know what it looked like, but it must have been pretty awesome. Hundreds of years later, King Solomon builds a permanent worship center, a temple in Jerusalem. And when that one's complete, in 1 Kings 8, uh, verse 10 through 12, it says that when the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple and the priests could not perform their duties, their service, because the cloud, the glory of the Lord, had filled the temple. So if it appears that the people are weeping because this temple is not as cool or this foundation is not as cool as the, the old one, we have to also take into consideration that when this temple is finished in chapter 6, it says that this temple, that we should be expecting, sorry, finish that thought, that we should be expecting the glory of the Lord to fill this temple. That's what the writer wants us to see. Their shouts of praise, their song, and then the glory of the Lord. Doesn't happen at the foundation. Maybe it's because it's not finished. So I read on to chapter 6. And it says, the temple was completed on March 12th of the sixth year. The temple was then dedicated with great joy, just like the first one, with the priests and the Levites and the rest of the people, same. During the dedication ceremony, there was great sacrifice, 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs. They were all sacrificed, 12 male goats presented as a sin offering for the 12 tribes. The priests and the Levites were divided into their divisions to serve in the temple of God in Jerusalem as prescribed by Moses and on April 21st, you know, five weeks later, the returned exile celebrate Passover. There's no mention of the glory of the Lord descending in that temple and filling it with his presence so that the priests could not enter. Nope, the priests just enter, they perform their services. There's no mention of the glory of God filling that temple. It's that. And though there's shouts of joy, I searched and searched and searched, there's no mention of weeping over that. See, when I thought there was the weeping, I thought clearly it's because the Lord's presence isn't there. No. It's like they totally missed it. Now, would you agree that when we're in the ruins and the rubble and the challenges of our life that some of us have a difficult time seeing God? You don't have to. I, I know some of you do. And here we have a story where people seem to be doing all the right religious activities and they still don't see or seek or sense God. And I don't think we can get too upset with them. Because I think that it's possible to do all the right religious activities and still miss God's presence. So, what does that mean for our lives? How can we be people who can see and help each other see God at work? 
now, present. Whether we're in ruins, whether we're just in our routines, or whether we're in the right religious activities, how can we see God at work? Well, what I see in the story is we can look for God in our problems. They were going back, and God was speaking to them even before they went into the exile. Remember these three waves. The first wave came by, 605. That's where, if you know um, some of the stories of the Old Testament, you'll know Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They all go to Babylon. That happens in 605. They were some of the first to go. But the people thought, oh, it's not going to be that bad. Babylon is not going to come and, and completely wipe us out. They're just going to take some of our best and brightest. It's like a recruiting trip. And Jeremiah was still in, Jeremiah this prophet was still in Jerusalem. He was saying, no, 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 you guys don't get it. It's going to be 70 years. For some of you, it's going to be your whole lives. It's because you've followed other gods, you've rebelled against God, you've violated his instructions for what it means to live in the promised land. But he was speaking to them about it. And one of the things that was completely violated, that is mentioned that is violated, is this um, violation of the fallow years, the Sabbath years, that every seventh year, they were supposed to, the people of God were supposed to let the land remain fallow, remain unplowed, unharvested. It means the vineyards and the orchards and the farmland not be harvested. And science has done research on this, that if you look, track year over year, if you were to plant, even today, um, six years and then take a seventh year off and do that again and do that again, that your land will produce more than if you do it all the time. Might not seem logical to have to trust God in that, but that's what they were asked to do. And they've lived in the promised land for 490 years and never once obeyed it. And so God says, that's 70 years worth of Sabbath years. And so God, in his justice and his mercy, sends the people into exile so the land can get its rest. Now, to me, that seems like such a small detail. Kind of like when I argue with God about you know, how much I rebel against him, how much I sin. Well, it's just this little sin. It's not this big sin, God. And God is completely saying that this is a big deal to him. Now, you don't have to agree with me, but I wonder if it still works that way. Like, God says, take a Sabbath. And I know Jesus says that Sabbath is made for the man, not man for the Sabbath, so less about the day we do it, but this principle idea of working every six days and then every seventh day taking a day off, which means if you are a person who creates things that one day you don't create, if you're a person who works with their hands, then on one day maybe you don't work with your hands. Maybe if, I think you get the idea, that that actually will remind you that you're not the king of the universe, that the world doesn't revolve, or queen, that the world doesn't revolve around you, and that life will still go on if you don't do something. That maybe the fallow years is, is just another 
way that this principle of listening to God for our lives is a good thing. Um, this one I try to talk about with my kids. They usually look at me weird, but like moral um, purity paves the way to relational intimacy. When we turn the question around of what should I do before I get married to how much can I save, we find that when people do that, they have a tendency to have relationally intimate lives that are healthy and good. Or maximum freedom is found under God's authority. These are all different examples of, I think, different examples of this principle of the fallow years and violating it. And so maybe you're in a place where you're kind of in a mess or you feel like there's rubble all around you and it's not even about whether it's your fault or not your fault. It's just that you're in this situation. Can you start to see that God is at work even amidst those problems? That he knows right where you're at, that he cares deeply about you, and then he's with you. Because the people say that God is with them in the midst of this. God is saying, I, I know you're going to be here, and you're going to be in here a long time, but it's not the end of the story. That's why I think we can look for God in his promises, too. Jeremiah, this prophet who says you're going to be here a long time, for some of you it's going to be your whole lives, but it's not the end of the story. The rest of the story says, you know, it's a long time, so settle down, build houses, plant gardens, get married, have children, increase, but you're going to be here for 70 years. But then I will come and I will do for you all the good things I have promised. Jeremiah 29, 10 through 14. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not harm you. Some of you know this verse. It's in the context of captivity. It's in the context of rubble. I will give you a hope and a future, and then you will pray to me, and I will listen. And if you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. And I will be found by you, says the Lord. I will end your captivity and I will restore your fortunes. We can look for God in the midst of his promises, even when the situation seems dark. Cyrus is a pagan king that follows all kinds of gods, and yet the God of Israel, the God that sent Jesus to us, is the God, is the person who is used to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. That's what Ezra 1.1 says. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved in the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout the whole realm to send these people back. See, we can look for God in his promises, but I think we can also look for God in the leaders that he puts above us. Now, this one might be a little harder when you think about, okay, we're talking about Ezra and Nehemiah, and Nehemiah builds these walls, and we live in a country that's under great debate about walls being built. But if God can speak to Cyrus, pagan king in 538, do we think that God can speak through our leaders in the world? whether they're in the United States or North Korea 
or Russia. It is the God of the universe. So I think we can look for God in the leaders above us. We might need to look with a little bit of scrutiny, but we can look. God moved in this pagan leader to release the prisoners. I mean, think, look at the number of times Cyrus acknowledges the God of the Jews, the God that sent Jesus. Verse 2, this is what Cyrus, the king of Persia, says, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him, build for him a temple in Jerusalem. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. Over and over, Cyrus is acknowledging their God. God also didn't just work in this one leader at the top. He also moved amongst the local community leaders. In Ezra 1 verse 5, it says, Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, the tribes, the priests, and the Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. God is at work even in, amongst the community leaders. And I think if we open our eyes to it, if we help each other see it, then wherever we're at, we can understand that God is present. Because sometimes it only takes one person who's an influencer to move towards God or God's purposes. And then dozens or hundreds or even thousands and millions of people see and seek God. I mean, a lot of people talk about the impact Billy Graham has, but a few people have acknowledged, what about Billy Graham's Sunday school teacher? Billy Graham's Sunday school teacher was the one that led him week over week to receive and understand who Jesus is. That has impacted millions of people in the world. Just like God used that Sunday school teacher, just like God used Billy Graham, I think God is looking for people who can influence just one. And finally, I think we can look for God in the people around us. Uh, Janice did a beautiful job with those names of people that were listed in the return. Excellent work. But I think it's significant that the highest civil leader, this governor, because remember there's no king, that the governor is named Zerubbabel or Zerubbabel. It means planted in Babylon. So here's a young man whose name means I started in Babylon, who's leading the people back. And right alongside of him, the person who's going to be the high priest or the highest priest is Joshua, whose name means the Lord saves. Who comes from Jehozadak, God is righteous, or Yahweh is righteous. And the rest of the people and the priests and the Levites all return from captivity to Jerusalem. Just because your life starts in a foreign land or in an unfamiliar place where you seem unknown doesn't mean that God doesn't have big dreams for you. When the temple foundation stopped, we'll look more at that next week, Zerubbabel, for 16 years, the people are just left there. God sends prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to speak into the situation, to help Joshua, to help Zerubbabel, so they finish the temple and they do it in four years after 
just kind of sitting for 16. No matter what your situation is, God could have a plan that you don't know yet. Because maybe you're in a place that's difficult. Maybe it's divorce or death or just even a loss of relationship or job. Or it could be this culture that we live in that seems to change so fast that we can't even keep up. I never thought we would pay $1,000 for a cell phone, and I just found out Samsung is releasing a $2,000 foldable cell phone. Wow. No judgment, just the world changes really fast. So maybe that's your difficult situation. But like God has been at work in each of these stories, can we see that God is at work now? Even in our tough situations, Because difficult, remember, difficult changes us and the world. He's present now. And I think what happens, and I think maybe what's happening in this story, is that sometimes we're just so relieved to get through the rubble, to get through that rebuilding, that we settle for religious activity. Rather than spending time looking for God's presence in each other, in the leaders, in the situation. Where we're at, we just, we do the religious things. That's what was happening in Jesus' day. Jesus went up to the temple to celebrate Passover. Again, a good religious activity. Instead, he found people selling cattle and sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money at exorbitant rates, I might add. And so he makes a whip and he drives these people out and he says, you're turning my father's house into a market. And then the Jews respond with, tell us what sign, what authority do you have that you can do this? And he says, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. Now, John, the writer that is writing that, The people say, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple, another temple by Herod, another day. And you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. See, John, as he's writing this, John was one of Jesus' followers. He's reflecting on how all of this fit together, and he's realizing that the things that were happening in Jesus' day were just like the things that were happening in exile, that were just like the things that were happening when they, when the Life was good in Israel when they had a king that was good, that was just like when they were in the desert, that might have even just been like when they were in Egypt, that you can settle for religious activity and miss God's presence. But then the disciples, after he had died, after he rose from the dead, then it made sense. Then they realized what he'd spoken And Jesus has lived, so we can live in that moment today. We don't have to live back in Ezra's day. We cannot, we can look for God in the past and in the present rubble. He's there. We can look for him in our religious routines. He's there. We just have to see. We can look for him in the future promises that he has for us, not just us here in this room, but us as a people that follow him. I mean, it's kind of like, the wildfires of California. They didn't discriminate who or what they would destroy. Everybody was vulnerable. But that meant everybody, regardless of their background, had to trust that God was there. That Jesus was present in the midst of that. And as Scott says it, our church became 
a bigger and tighter family. One of Jesus' followers, Paul, says in 1 Corinthians 3, don't you realize that you all together are the temple of God and the Holy Spirit of God is within you? See, when you say yes to Jesus, he does put his spirit in us. We don't have to go and seek a temple now. We are a dwelling place with God and when we're together, we are a more powerful, more present dwelling place with God. The spirit is present here today. So where is God inviting you to see him? Right now, wherever you're at. As the band comes up, I just want you to consider that, ponder that. God, we just pause even before we sing and close to ask your Holy Spirit to show us where you're at work, where you're present, Forgive us when we don't seek or see you with us. Whatever the reason, God, pray that your Holy Spirit would just speak to us right now about where we're at and the fact that you're there.